Hi, I'm Seth Abramovich. I'm a senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. And I'm Chip Pope. I'm a TV writer and a pop culture enthusiast. And this is It Happened in Hollywood, a podcast where we go backwards in time and profile an amazing chapter in show business history. And then we interview somebody that's involved in the making of this history. Then later, me and Chip comment on those interviews. Got it? I think I do. <laughs> I hope you do by now. Let's get right to it. Welcome to It, it Happened, Happened in Hollywood. We're back in 1989. The biggest movies that year are sort of family, good time entertainment, like Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Big and Cocktail. Cosby Show is the number one show on TV and Roseanne is right behind him. <laughs> I bet those two would be on top forever. It's hard to believe where we are. What uh, could happen with those 2018. two? And then revolution is in the air. The Berlin Wall came down. There's the uh, Tiananmen Square protest. And in this sort of end of a decade bubble, there's a screenwriter in Hollywood who's caught a lot of attention for changing the game of screenwriting. Right, because usually they're like kind of unwashed scribes. You don't know who they are. You don't know what they've written. With this guy, he made people pay attention to the screenwriter. He came out of Rolling Stone magazine where he worked with Hunter S. Thompson, and I think he picked up a lot of his swagger and style. He'd wear motorcycle jackets and had long hair that he slicked back, and he'd wear Hawaiian shirts, and it was a very I-don't-give-a-shit kind of attitude. He had battles with all the power brokers and directors, and he had affairs with infamous ladies. Ooh. Basically, this guy influenced an entire generation of people to move to L.A. to live this amazing screenwriter lifestyle that he was advertising that didn't really exist outside of him. Yeah, he was kind of the only superstar screenwriter because you think about it, how many of them are there around now? Like, what do you name, Aaron Sorkin? Or they've got to be directors too, like Quentin Tarantino. Or I think of like Aaron Sorkin, maybe the, the Lost guy, Damon Lindelof. See, but no, people don't really know his name per se i mean yeah you could never dress up for halloween as damon lindelof right but you could dress up for halloween as this guy and this guy is this week's guest joe esterhaz bad boy screenwriter of the 90s who did films like basic instinct and the camp classic showgirls showgirls and it's going to be a two-part episode that sounds pretty cool. What are the two parts? <laughs> Basic Instinct and Showgirls. But we'll be. Oh, that's right. I was there for both of them. You were. And we cover both those films with the man himself. This is special because Esther House doesn't live in Hollywood anymore. He lives in Cleveland. So we got the opportunity to go to Cleveland to Joe Esther House's house and interview him. And it was uh, mind blowing. Well, let's get right to it. So when our story opens, Joe is living in L.A. and uh, has really already made quite a splash. One of his first movies was Flashdance, the sort of MTV welder-turns-dancer uh, extravaganza that became a bit of a cultural touchstone. Maniac, 
that earned him some capital in town and, and then he had made a few more after that always writing he, he never wanted to direct another one with Jagged Edge a thriller with Glenn Link. Close right nominated for an Oscar yeah so he already Glenn had... not so close <laughs> Been close, but no cigar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you know, he was riding high, and he had a top agency in town representing him. And, of course, that was run at the time by the fearsome Mike Ovitz. Everything was going great until he decided to leave CAA. I had been represented early in my career by Guy McElwain at ICM, who was sort of my rabbi and my guru. The guy had never represented a writer before. But he had represented some of the biggest names in the business. He'd run studios. Then he came back to ICM, and I hooked up with him. Guy then went off and ran another studio, and and in that period of time, I went to CAA. Michael was one of my agents. They have a team approach, and and Rand Olson was the one who was day-to-day. Michael was one of my agents. But in the years that went by, my career, it blossomed. Um, and I'd had some hit movies. And then Guy came back and became an agent again. And when he let me know that he was an agent, I immediately said to him, well, you've got your first client, man, because we were that close. I called Barry Hirsch, my attorney, and said, going back to Guy, you know, and, and he said, well, you can't do that. And I said, what do you mean I can't do that, you know? I said, well, you know, you, you can't, the CAA has been very good for your career. Michael has been very good, and you can go crazy if you do this. And I said, well, I'm really sorry. It's a question of the heart, you know, and I have to do this. He very strongly advised me not to do it. I disregarded the advice. Now, at the time, Michael Ovitz, just the mention of his name could strike fear into the hearts of anyone involved in Hollywood. He, he was the guy who ruled the town with an iron fist. And you didn't want to cross him. Yeah, I mean, I would still get scared to just mention him right now. This is the core of what Esther House is. He's not intimidated by anything, which is different than most writers. Most writers, your agent would say, you know what? You got to stick with the guy. And they would go, okay, because we're just always afraid there's never going to be another job. Nothing else is ever going to pan out. So we don't have the capital. Now, not everybody has the capital of Joe Esther House where you're making millions of dollars a picture. But usually even the writers that are making millions of dollars a picture just turn over and take what they can get. Sure, because CAA being the most powerful agency at the time had also the stars and the directors and all the people you would want to be working in your movies to make them successful. They invented the package. Did they invent the package? We probably, probably. <laughs> it's all about packages in Hollywood anyway. But she said. So Mike Ovitz catches word of Joe's intentions to leave the agency, and he summons him to CAA for a face-to-face meeting. Actually, his first, even though he had been part of a team representing Joe for several years, their first time meeting face-to-face in his office. I'd been in Florida on vacation, and then uh, I came back, and the first thing I did was call Michael and told him I wanted to see him. And I remember it was real. It was the first time I'd been in the CAA building because all they'd met the agents in restaurants or in different places. So I went in and I was essentially dressed like a beach bum. Not that my usual attire wasn't like that anyway, but you know I wore tennis shoes that had been lived in and a pair of shorts and some uh, funky Hawaiian shirt. I went up and uh, he he had his um, suit on and his tie and he looked very buttoned down and formal. And I proceeded to tell him that because of my relationship with Guy and because I was so grateful to Guy for what had happened with my career, not that I wasn't grateful to them, to CA, for how they had helped me, 
but this was really a question of the heart. And he sat there sort of stone-faced and said, well, you can't do that. And, and I said, uh, oh, I mean, I can't do that, you know, and said, well, you can't do that. And if you do that, he said, then, then my foot soldiers who go up and down Wilshire Boulevard will put you into the ground. And he said it very mildly, calmly. And I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck did this asshole just say when he said to me? <laughs> If there were foot soldiers going down Wilshire Boulevard, you would be able to recognize them because they're the only people wearing suits. Yeah, goose-stepping in Armani suits. Yes, only agents wear suits, so you would know. One time my agent took us to Magic Mountain, and he changed out of his suit in the parking lot, and then we went to Magic Mountain, and he changed back into his suit and then drove back to CAA for more meetings. What? What's wrong with these people? <laughs> But that's a foot soldier for you. That's a foot soldier. Was he making deals on Tetsu? Yeah, I mean, he was the kind of guy you'd see him and you'd go, what's up? And he goes, I'm making that deal for you. And you're like, I don't, I don't even have, there's no deal going on. Why don't you just be a human being? You know, but it's the, it was the CAA way. So obviously that's a pretty heavy threat to make to someone who's just a screenwriter and this is just Hollywood. But, you know, it's pretty scary to say that you're going to basically kill someone for for leaving your agency, it's more like mafia talk. Right. It's a real threat. And there's two differing schools, though. There's two he said, he says, because Ovid sees it far differently than Esterhaus sees it. They both wrote a book. That's true, yeah. Not and together. Ovitz's just came out. Uh, so he hasn't really ever weighed in on this since 1989, but he does devote three pages in his book to this incident. So this is what Mike Ovitz writes in his book, Who is Michael Ovitz? Joe's account was total nonsense. Here's what happened. Joe sat on my sofa and confessed that he was happy at CAA. His problem was that he couldn't see how to stay with us without seeming disloyal to Guy. In jest, I said, it's simple, Joe. Tell Guy I threatened to make your life difficult and you didn't need that kind of pressure. Tell him I said my foot soldiers will blow your brains out. We both laughed. So there you have two very different <laughs> takes on the same conversation. So Esther House stayed with CAA for a while. He was intimidated into staying for, yeah. for a brief moment. So it started, though, to eat at him because part of this guy's core, the first principle, I think, of Joe Esther House is integrity, that he's just going to do what he's going to do and fuck you. And then the second part of it, I think, is loyalty. So he's very loyal to this old agent guy that he has. So he decides he's got to leave CAA, even if it's painful. Yeah, and he decides to put down all his thoughts into a letter that he's going to fire off to Mike Ovitz at CAA, informing him that he's leaving. But just to what he says, secure his reputation in case Mike Ovitz pulled anything, he put out a few copies of the letter around town. And one of them was in an unsealed envelope, and he was actually hoping that it would leak. And then, of course, it did leak. I sat down and I wrote this letter, whereas I essentially told him to go fuck himself. I wasn't going to go back, right? And um, no matter what threats they made and no, no matter what he they threatened to, Rand said he was going to destroy a three-picture deal I had with MGM. So whatever they were going to do, I wasn't going back. In Joe Esterhouse's memoir, he has a reprint of the letter and there's some juicy parts in there where he says, like, maybe you can beat the hell out of some people and they will smile at you afterward and make nice, and I can't do that. And then he goes on to end this letter basically with, so do whatever you want to, Mike, and fuck you. 
So after the, the letter got leaked, someone at the LA Times got their hands on it and put it in a front page story in their arts and leisure section. And that was it. Then Liz Smith, the gossip columnist, picked it up. And there was no internet. But if there was, you know, it's the equivalent of going viral. Everyone in Hollywood was passing around, faxing this letter, reading the letter, couldn't believe anyone would go up against Mike Ovitz like this and say those things. It was like the last time in Hollywood that anybody read anything. <laughs> so basically, after this period, you know, he, he went into a kind of a, a bit of a panic dark period because good friends of his were telling him to watch his back that he was actually in physical danger beyond being told that he was never going to work again, that Mike Ovitz really does control Hollywood and he would do everything he could to destroy his career. And he was, he started to believe it. He thought, well, maybe I, I did the wrong thing. So he was starting to worry that he might never work again, but he's under a lot of pressure. He had a lot of pressure. You know, he had now was at ICM with Guy McElwain, this old friend of his, and there was a lot of pressure to basically prove that he was still a viable screenwriting force in Hollywood. So he sat down at his typewriter, computer, whatever he was using at that time. Manual typewriter is what he writes on. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, there you go. He writes on a manual typewriter, and he had an idea kicking around in his mind. I'd had this idea for some time. I was a police reporter as a journalist for years in, in both Dayton and in Cleveland. Got close to some cops and knew some cops. And I knew one particular cop that I liked who had been accused in three or four different police shootings. We drank together, we hung out together, and I sort of got the feeling that Jack really liked it. You know, that he liked that part of it, he liked using a gun. And the character fascinated me. Later on, I was around a woman who and I had a relationship with a woman who was gorgeous and, and smart as a whip and uh, was an expert manipulator, both career-wise and on, on an intimate level. She was probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. And somehow, the two characters conflated in my head. And I thought, what would happen if this guy, this particular cop with his tendencies, would hook up with a woman? like this, who's a killer, and what would happen in that relationship. And I'd really been kicking that around for some time, not, not really consciously, but it was in the back of my head. And so one day I just sat down to write it. It, it flowed almost effortlessly. I wrote it in, I think, 13 days. The original title of it was Love Hurts. Wait, it was called Lovebirds? Yeah, yeah, Lovebirds. That seems like a, a good title for this story, Lovebirds. For a movie about murderous maniacs? The, the last moment before I walked out of my house in San Rafael, it was called Lovebirds. I had I was taking it down to FedEx to send it down to them, and literally as I walked out of the house, it was you know it was like Saul on the way to Damascus. I thought, no, it's basic instinct, right? That's the title, and it, it had not occurred to me before then. And it literally is a piece. I turned back around, went to my little manual typewriter, put a new cover page on, it, and sent it down. So they, <laughs> they had basic instinct when they got it. So, you know, it makes the three million in, in an auction. And as an extra fuck you to Michael Ovitz, Michael Douglas gets attached as the lead. Right. And he makes, you know, a staggering 15 million. They're both Hollywood animals because Ovitz isn't going to pass up getting a commission on 15 million dollars. Yeah, of course. You know, you can you can say you're going to have your foot soldiers bury you 50 feet beneath Wilshire Boulevard. Yeah. But then, you know. 
then you have lunch at the grill in the alley the next day when you find out that there's a nice commission to be made. Oh, yeah. I'm making a million five on this. Okay. A million five here in 1991. Is that what it was? So a lot <laughs> more money back then. So Michael Douglas has signed on to play this uh, shoot-happy, alcoholic, sex-crazed cop in San Francisco. Can I just say I love this point in Michael Douglas's career. This He had the best career in the 80s and 90s. You know, it was like the game, you know, like, society's trying to harass me. Falling down. Disclosure. This woman's trying to harass me. Falling down. Society's trying to harass me. (laughs) Basic instinct. This woman's trying to kill me. So they had the lead actor in Michael Douglas, and they had Paul Verhoeven, who had some success in uh, sci-fi and genre stuff, like RoboCop and Total Recall. And Sharon Stone was in Total Recall. Right. And filling this role of Catherine Trammell was going to be a very tricky one to fill. She's a psychopathic killer. A beautiful novelist. A 30-year-old accomplished beautiful novelist. And uh, very uh, self-assured and um, omnisexual and gets what she wants and not really a character we'd seen in cinema before, but sort of uh, inspired by some maybe some of the the Hitchcock ladies, but she wore the pants in this movie. Definitely. So they were having um, some trouble looking around for who they wanted, and they were going to the top movie actresses of the time. Lena Olin, Kelly McGillis, all those. And that was it. A-listers. That was it. (laughs) But then Verhoeven had a thought, and this actress, very ambitious, but wasn't having a lot of luck, had been for over a decade trying to make it in town. Everyone knew her name. She had a small part in Total Recall, and he thought, Hmm, maybe she might be able to do this. And her name was Sharon Stone. She was superb in the movie, I thought, and partly because she brought together the the qualities of being almost as sweet and cuddly and all of that, combined with the potential for, for being a coldly manipulative killer, which was never really defined, of course, in the movie, but, but you know, that was a character. So Sharon's screen test goes swimmingly, and she's the perfect character. Catherine Trammell. Did I get that right? <laughs> yeah, Catherine Trammell. <laughs> and so they have their cast, um, but this movie is not your regular production. It's becoming a bit of a, a media darling or maybe a bit of a circus, partially because of the huge amounts uh, that the screenwriter, director, Verhoeven got $7 million and Michael Douglas $15 million, which was astronomical at that time. At that time, not now, right? Everyone's got a spare $7 mil lying around. <laughs> So it starts to make national news. I was in, in on vacation with my first wife and my and my kids shortly after the sale in Florida. And the CBS Evening News flew in a helicopter crew and landed on the beach just to get the interview. I mean, it wound up being the second lead story on the CBS Evening News. So I suddenly became very, very public, suddenly, almost overnight, even though I'd done, I don't know, six or seven movies by then, you know, in the... Uh, including Jagged Edge and Flashdance. It's worth mentioning at this point that even though Esterhouse is making all this money, he still has no problems walking away from this picture because uh, Michael Douglas and Verhoeven want to change the ending to where the lead character, played by Michael Douglas, has some kind of redemption. And Esterhouse doesn't see it that way. Put your hands up! Put your fucking hands up! I got a message on my machine to meet Gus here. Where is he? Don't move! Don't you move! I know about your husband. Is it like girls, Beth? Take your hand out of your pocket! Take him out! What's wrong with you? Take him out! <laughs> I'm 
mind you, he's going to keep the money and keep his name on the movie, but he'll symbolically walk away, which was actually a big deal and, you know, got a lot of headlines. That's still something, yeah, because the writers don't do that. Yeah, because he was such a big celebrity screenwriter, the fact that he was walking away, quote unquote, from this movie actually meant something. Whereas these days, they would just go, bye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess what I cultivated and what I stood for really was... I felt that the average screenwriter had acted like and had been treated like a whore. And I, I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be a whore. I am who I am, and I write. I believe in what I write. And I thought there was a great danger for screenwriters if they don't believe in what they write. And if they accept being treated like a whore, then the stuff that they write isn't going to be very good. But if you can't look yourself in the mirror, it's going to affect you deeply when you sit down with that blank piece of paper. He was really one of the first writers in Hollywood that just said, I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to be a whore. It's not the best choice of words, but, you know, there's something in his chutzpah that I think everyone could take a lesson out of. And when right now what I'm thinking of is is time's up and they're saying, you know, we want what we're worth and and we know what, what we're worth. And that's what he was saying. And I think everyone in Hollywood could take a lesson from Joe Esterhaz and, and find your inner Esterhaus. Find your inner Esterhaus. So they shot the movie. It actually also was a bumpy shoot because Queer Nation, you know, an early gay rights group, you know, in the early 90s in San Francisco, got a hold of the script and found out that Sharon Stone character is bisexual and a murderer and didn't like that depiction on, on film. So they would run around trying to disrupt the set in San Francisco and wore T-shirts that said Catherine did it to try to ruin the ending. Oh, and my God. Rude. <laughs> and actually protesting is rude you know i think there were good people on both sides of that protest yeah and actually they had a sort of summit with verhoven and joe esterhaz where the gay rights people and esterhaz met and he actually did make a concession to them and took out the word dyke out of one of the cop characters he said it a few times and they ended up cutting that so they so it did actually have an effect on the film but ultimately the the basic building blocks of the plot involving a woman who has sex with anything. And it's worth noting that Esther House, you know, does stick to his guns, but, it, you know, he listens to this group when he realizes it's something that has offended people and he doesn't want to do that, so he takes it out. Yeah. And, and Verhoeven's like going, no, we don't want to take any of it out. And that's when Joe Esther House kind of walks off the project and he's not around for any of the filming. Yeah, and so he was a little bit surprised when he finally did see the premiere specifically by one scene and it's definitely the scene that is most quoted parodied remembered and yes. that would be the interrogation scene correct Catherine trammell is brought in because she is a, a casual lover of the victim who gets a ice pick in the head during some rough sex at the beginning of the picture and a group of male detectives have their eyes trained on her and in a sequence that probably launched an entire new strain of feminist academia they proceed to ask her questions and she uncrosses her legs to reveal that she has nothing on it's camille Paglia's screensaver <laughs> I, I, I don't know but here's esterhaz's take on on having seen that scene the famous interrogation scene. I saw the finished product for the first time together with my 17-year-old boy in Marin County. 
and uh, there were old bank of cameras outside because people knew I was watching it and they knew about the controversy and all of that. So I could come up and you know, these reporters are asking questions. And then Steve says to me, as we're walking away, he said, Dad, he said, my God, that interrogation scene, that was really something. How could you come up with something like that? That was <laughs> fucking brilliant. Now, moment of truth. You know, do you lie to your kid or tell the truth in that kind of moment? Well, the truth was that in the previous scene of the script, Michael was watching her in Stinson Beach at her house. And he saw, as she was putting her clothes on, that she was naked underneath. So he saw her naked body. Paul took that nakedness in that scene and put it into the interrogation scene, which is a brilliant, brilliant change. And uh, it turned into the most famous scene in the movie. Do you use drugs, Mr. Mel? Sometimes. You ever use drugs with Mr. Boz? Sure. What kind of drugs? Cocaine. Have you ever fucked on cocaine, Nick? It's nice. Oh, man, come on. He watched that with his teenage son. I mean, when I was a teenager, I can't watch anything that even had like a butt with my parents. I mean, I, I watched How Stella Got Her Groove Back with my grandmother, and that was one of the most uncomfortable things in my life. The whole movie is like, did your man ever go down on you? You know, I was like, oh, <laughs> uh, I'm going to go down and get some snacks. <laughs> Grandma, you want anything? What about you? You ever have to watch sexy movies with your parents? Mm, my mom keeps talking about Call Me By Your Name. That was her favorite movie of last year. And I, I get <laughs> yeah. kind of uncomfortable every time she brings it up. Was she like the peach part? I mean, what did... I just changed the subject because I don't even want to bring up peaches. But um, I hope that's not what she thinks is representative of all same-sex unions. Right. There is another scene that you would not want to watch in front of your parents in Basic Instinct. Yeah, you might not want to watch it in front of your girlfriend either. It's the quote-unquote date rape scene. And in watching it again, I have to say I found it quite shocking more than any other scene in in the film. And uh, in it, it's Michael Douglas's character goes home with his girlfriend slash internal affairs psychiatrist, Gene Triplehorn, Gene Triplehorn who's actually really beautiful in this movie. Actually, what does that mean? No, just, just <laughs> that I, I was taken really in by... In Waterworld, she looks like a troll. No, just that, you know... She, I had forgotten really how, how beautiful she was. Mm -hmm. And so they go home and he's been dealing with this crazy maybe killer and has a lot of pent up something. And he uh, he basically pushes her against a wall and rips off her clothes and is having very rough sex with her. But then at some point he it goes over to a table or, or a piece of furniture and he bends her over and she says no and he keeps going and at that point you're like okay we're definitely in yeah, rape that, territory that's a day rape. yeah we're definitely in rape territory and so i asked esther has you know what he was thinking when he wrote that scene and also how he thinks it might be received now in the current me too climate in the current climate you know, we probably have serious Me Too protesters out there. But I think that's the, that's our current climate. My intent was not a rape. My intent was rub sex, to bring out that part of his personality. But today's yardstick is different. And I like Me Too. I think they've done terrific things, certainly in terms of the industry, especially. Um, the, uh, but just generally, um, societally, I think they've done terrific things. 
And as I was very, very touched with Catherine Blasey Ford's testimony, except I renamed her and middle name should be Ballsy Catherine. Ballsy, <laughs> you know, but, uh, nice. but ultimately, I think it's very good. And Rand Woods also looked at this stuff with uh, Harvey and all the other guys that have been caught with this. They had one funny Harvey story. In an Alan Smithy film, there's a character named Rizzo. It's a private eye. And Anthony Pelicano, we cast Anthony in the movie that played this private eye. Arnold Rifkin was my agent, and he called me after Tony had been cast and said, uh, Harvey somehow read the script, and he wants to play Rizzo. And I said, well, does Harvey act? And, and Rifkin said, no, but he wants to play Rizzo. And he said, well, okay, the... Um, it's a Hollywood insider joke, and, and uh, if Harvey plays Rizzo, it's funnier than if Pelicano plays him. So I don't have any problem with that. So the first day when we're selecting costumes, Harvey's there picking out his suits, and Ripken's there, and a bunch of other people are around. And I hadn't met Harvey until then, and, and then I said to him, are you going to tell me something? You haven't acted in anything. What made you want to act this particular part in this particular movie? And um, he sort of looks up and he pulls into this little circle of men and, and whispers, well, I knew it was a Joe Westerhaus movie, so I knew there'd be pussy. It's Harvey. You know, that's wow. obviously Harvey. You know, and the, 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 the comment became revelatory to me after all of this shit happened. Not touching it. Not talking about it. The mixed messages that old white men are sending to each other. Look, Harvey, you're bad. Kavanaugh, you're on the Supreme Court. This is the thing that Me Too is correcting, is really, you know, all the stuff that's happening in this era. Yes. And leading up to this era. Right. And so it's funny to hear Esther Haas sort of be so pro Me Too because he was the target of tons of accusations of misogyny and just being horrible for women. And he defended himself back then. He sent a letter, I remember, to the LA Times, long letter that they printed, in which he defended his record when it comes to women and sort of went through a lot of his movies that don't get as much attention as maybe Showgirls and Basic Instinct and said, look, at Flashdance, she was a blue-collar welder who was, like, achieving her dreams and, you know. And just in Basic Instinct, I mean, Catherine Trammell runs the whole show. She's manipulating all these men. She's getting her way at every turn, doing what she wants. The actor, Sharon Stone, who's playing the character, is also getting what she wants in the movie to the point to where Michael Douglas is upset how the movie is progressing, that her character is beating out his character at every turn. So. Yeah, you know, um, one way you can look at the film and say this is uh, written by men for men and is not how women behave and that she is, you know, an unlikable, you know, possibly murderous, promiscuous, uh, exhibitionist, whatever. And that's bad for women. But you can look at it the way you were saying and say that this is an incredibly powerful woman who is basically pulling everyone's strings and, and controlling everything. And isn't... Yeah, they can't keep it in their pants. They're more emotional. They can't control their emotions. She controls everything. Yeah, it's the men are the ones who are flying off the handle and being emotional and ridiculous in the movie. And she's the character you come away with. It made Sharon Stone a huge star. It's an iconic role. 
So at some point in the in the production, Sharon Stone and Joe went on a date or had some kind of romantic involvement. And I tried to press him on details. He wasn't that forthcoming, but this is what we got. So I want to ask about Sharon Stone. So obviously you guys had something. Right. Well, for one thing, Paul was very open about the fact that he tried very hard to sleep with her during right. filming and she never would. And that contributed maybe to some of the tension in the final product she said that um that she would if he left martine if he left his wife and uh, you know paul's had a series of adventures during movies and of course he never left martine so what exactly is your question Seth? <laughs> <laughs> i liked her from the very beginning when 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 she and i first talked about the script itself i think part of the reason i like she's a midwestern girl fundamentally under all of it and most of the women that I've been seriously involved with in my life are Ohio girls or Midwestern girls. But I liked her. Some, she had a terrific, warm quality combined with the sexuality that was really there, but it was never overtly there. It was sitting in my mind subtly there. The camera brought her more out. But I liked her. Two things, Seth. One, you got balls just going like, hey, tell me about seducing Sharon Stone. You come into a man's house. His wife makes you scones. And you sit there... And ask him about seducing, seducing Sharon, seducing Sharon Stone. <laughs> you are a real, a true journalist. I'll tell Thank you right you. now. Thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. Yes. And another thing, I love how Sharon Stone, much like her character, Catherine Trammell in Basic Instinct, is manipulating the lives of both of these married men in real life as well, not just in the movie. And Esther has told us that to this day, Paul Verhoeven still swears up and down that Sharon Stone is Catherine Trammell. Right. That like she's evil. But he says, <laughs> no. Yeah, that's what he said. She's in uh, the book Hollywood Animal. He says she is evil. And Joe Esterhouse says, I didn't believe him. And actually, that book has a lot more dirt about Sharon Stone than this interview got. So is there anything good about their date in there? I just want to maybe some details. Well, yes, this is from the Joe Esterhouse book, Hollywood Animal. They go on a date where they go to Virgin Records and buy some James Brown CDs and they go to dinner and they get high and everything. On and what? then on uh, weed before it was legal. So this is crazy. This is crazy back then. So uh, he says, like, uh, you know, everything's going along. And then suddenly, though, there's a brief and insane moment where Sharon gets really uh, downbeat and she goes, my ass hangs halfway to my knees, she said. You've got a beautiful ass, I told her. She said, I'm pushing 40. This should have happened to me 20 years ago. Why didn't you write this script 20 years ago? Why? She suddenly got briefly depressed and said, I crawled the hill of broken glass and I sucked and I sucked until I sucked all the air out of my life. So a fun date. <laughs> yeah. <ooh. laughs> and she's like 34. She's like, I'm pushing 40. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what happens. <laughs> so the movie comes out, whatever controversies were around its production, just peter out and people go crazy for it. It becomes an international blockbuster earning around the world 353 million in 92. Wow. How much money is that in today's money? It's somewhere in the vicinity of 600 million in 2018. So, oh man, pretty insane for a movie that had a budget of about $45 million. And the reception was definitely mixed. Some people found it a little too trashy for their taste. But now Hollywood... that I think about it, I did see this movie with my parents. You did? <laughs> so far, yes. Yes. And their reaction was mixed. <laughs> they thought it was a little, my parents are very conservative. 
Did you really think it was so special? I told her I thought it was the fuck of the century. <laughs> well, what do you think? I thought it was a pretty good beginning. The Hollywood Reporter, they were impressed with it. In their review, this publication said that Esterhaz's screenplay was riveting and abrupt plot turns spring naturally from the lead character's pathologies. So basically, basically, full circle, you know, we start at him being, you know, threatened for his, by his life and thinking he's has no more career and that the most powerful man in Hollywood is going to destroy whatever career he's built for himself in in Hollywood and Esther has not only breaks all the records for sales of a screenplay but then the screenplay indeed goes on to become a blockbuster. Yes. He crawled the hill of broken glass to success. <laughs> Basically, everything was going his way at this point, and it was hard to see how anything could go wrong. You know, one of the things that happens after you have a towering hit like Basic is that one, yes, you do want to work together again, and two, it's an overdose of hubris. You think you can do anything, you know? <laughs> and, and so Paul and I were individually sort of scanning around of what we might be interested in doing. And I mentioned uh, Showgirls to him, and he was very interested in it. Oh, my God. Well, what could go wrong? Yeah, I mean, the band's back together. This is going to be great. So tune in next week to find out what happens on part two of Joe Esterhaz, It Happened in Hollywood. And make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. So keep that ice pick under the bed until next week, and we'll see you.